Want to start your own podcast? Anchor makes it super easy. Here's what you need to know about Anchor. Most importantly, it's free. Second, there are tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor distributes your podcast to numerous platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can make money from your podcast with minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a quality podcast all in one place. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to get started. Franklin Olakunle Amu is the co-founder and managing partner at Bayless Emerging Markets. Bayless is a non-brick private equity emerging and frontier markets investment fund that focuses on private middle market growth equity investments in industrial and telecom assets across Africa. Bayless focuses on less covered geographies, including Francophone and post-conflict countries, where access to much needed development and growth capital has been an ongoing issue. Franklin holds a BA in economics from Columbia University and an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Franklin, welcome to the show. Welcome back to season two of the Where's the Fund in Africa edition podcast. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to providing even better content and value this season. Before I get into the interview with our guest, Franklin Amu of Bayless Capital, I would like to shout out Endgame, the strategy company in Abuja, Nigeria. Endgame is an integrated strategy, technology, marketing, and creative agency that has been a great friend to the podcast. If you are looking for a strategy and marketing company to help you with your business, check them out at endgamehq.com. Now let's welcome our guest, Franklin Amu, to the show, and I'm very excited to talk to him today. So Franklin, welcome to the show, and tell us a little bit about your background as an invest, as um, in, in banking and in investment. Uh, sure. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Um, so my background, uh, I was, uh, I'm Nigerian-American. I was born in Brooklyn and raised there and educated primarily in New York. Brooklyn in the house. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I was born to Nigerian parents. So I've always had uh, a strong sort of identity rooted in Nigeria, although, um, you know, most of my lived life was in the United States uh, and, and quite frankly, primarily in New York. Um, uh, and so uh, after uh, I went to Columbia, which is, you know, in New York City, uh, and then uh, emerged in like many uh, into investment banking in the early 2000s, sort of just after the dot-com boom exploded. Uh, and uh, I had a long career uh, in sort of, you know, very sort of vanilla uh, front office uh, investment banks and, and, and channel through, um, you know, uh, a handful of sort of balls bracket banks. Um, in between, I went to business school at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I think that was where I really, uh, you know, really got involved in Africa in earnest. I think, um, you know, I had always had the idea that um, I would do something with Africa in the long term. Uh, but I think like many people who grew up in the diaspora, my, my thinking then was very, very sort of 
rudimentary and somewhat naive. It was it was like you know I'll I'll be very successful in developed markets. I'll I'll you know you know sort of capture some resources and then I'll go build a house you know in my in my you know my my father's town or something like that. You know it was kind of that isn't that the immigrant thing. person kind of like linear? <laughs> yeah. <way of> thinking? <laughs> Being an immigrant exactly. myself, I I understand that way of thinking. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe I'll sponsor a church or a sponsor a mosque, you know, these kind of things. So there weren't, there wasn't a very uh, sort of well-constructed understanding of how I could be, um, you know, participatory. Uh, and I, I think that changed very strongly in business school for two reasons. Uh, one was my classmates. I mean, uh, Wharton was very, very international. Um, and with that came a very large and strong uh, African student contingent um, uh, to, to, you know, in, within my within my class, um, and I got to know people who were directly, you know, had you know who were born and raised on the continent, and were doing all sorts of interesting things. Um, and it was the first time I sort of raised my eyebrows and said, you know, you know, some 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 pretty some pretty some pretty interesting things are happening on the continent. I think I was sort of, you know, tangentially aware of Africa private equity before going to school. And I'm pretty sure I wrote an essay saying I wanted to do private equity in Africa, but I don't think I was all that genuine. I think I was just trying to get into school and say something different. Um, I think <laughs> a lot of us are guilty of just writing those things on applications, <laughs> right, and not quite right, being sure right. how, you know, whether or not we're actually going to do them. Exactly. I mean, it sounded like, you know, kind of kind of thing that they want to hear from, uh, you know, sort of uh, diversity students, you know, what have you. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I, I got to school and I met all these people and and it was the first time I really sort of started thinking, you know, you know, more, um, more, more in a more sophisticated manner about the opportunity set in Africa. Um, the, the second thing I think um, that happened uh, while I was in business school was, um, you know, uh, I, I had two two very good friends, uh, Ameka Iwumjika and uh, a guy called Dokun Alawale, and the three of us started up a a a a, a sort of uh, media company focused on Africa and really global black. You know, so it was Caribbean, it was African American, it was Afro European uh, media content, and trying to distribute it. And um, you know, between that and uh, I also was approached by a cousin of mine. Uh, Femi Alaren, who, uh, who, who's a very successful entrepreneur uh, in Abuja, Nigeria, in the auto space, um, about doing something, you know, you know, sort of, you know, helping him think through his business, uh, which was fast growing. Um, and, and, you know, and those two sort of, you know, practical business uh, experiences sort of said, oh, wow, you know, there's something here. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, after business school, I went I, 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 I toyed with the idea of working for an African private equity uh, firm um, that didn't ultimately, I ultimately didn't do that, but um, I had it very strongly in my mind that I would do this um, in, in the near future. I went back to Wall Street. Um, I was highly involved with sort of structured credit at that time, um, which was, you know, sort of the sexy area, I suppose, at the time, uh, which is very interesting and intellectually stimulating, but again, constantly kept thinking as I was creating these sort of investment products and tools, thinking, wow, you know, this could be applied to Africa in this way, you know, this kind of risk mitigation could be done in Africa. Why aren't we securitizing African bank loans, et cetera? Um, and ultimately in 2016, um, you know, I had a relatively senior position at, at, a, at a large bank in New York. And, you know, I was just in one of these inflection points where I was wanted to do something different, wasn't particularly thrilled with my job, um, uh, was but was doing okay financially, et cetera, um, and just felt 
you know, it, it was time to sort of take the leap. And, um, you know, I'm not sure I would recommend this, but um, I, instead of sort of applying uh, to a private equity job or, or some other kind of investment job in Africa, um, you know, which is probably the more sensible thing to do, um, I decided to start my own firm. Uh, and and um, uh, I ended up, uh, it was a sort of a long confluence of events, but um, originally the idea was an established US private equity firm was curious about doing something in Africa. And I had a friend there uh, and he and I toyed with the idea for a few months of sort of incubating a fund in house. Um, originally, um, you know, there were sort of, you know, the, you know, the, you know there's a very large number of, of, of assets in the management that we were supposed to be um, entrusted with. And it was a very sort of comfortable, um, you know, transition to being an entrepreneur because, you know, you know, they were going to offer a lot of resources, a lot of support. Um, and as, as life has it, you know, that went away very quickly. Um, they changed their mind. They, they, they were doing something else, not Africa anymore. And I had so, to put my job so already. So I was out can, can we talk about that a little bit? Um, and, and maybe yeah. once we get into the show, like when you are looking for funding or sort of making these, these nothing is sure until it actually happens. And no. negotiating yeah. these things take a long time and people can change their mind and they can change their minds for a variety of reasons. So don't count your eggs until they're actually hatched. 1,000 percent. And I would also say that, you know, whatever you think you've saved, that's enough, you know, double or triple that amount. I mean, you know, I, I, as I said, I mean, I was, you know, I had a fortunate career, you know, I was, I was pretty well compensated, et cetera. Um, and I thought I had great savings. I was, you know, I was a single guy in New York. I didn't have many expenses at that time. Um, you know, it, it didn't work out that way, right? you know, uh, it, it took a long, long time to, to raise money. Um, and so, you know, my, meanwhile, my savings, which seemed, you know, you know, meaningful at the time, you know, to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle until they, until, you know, they weren't so meaningful anymore. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, it took me a long time to sort of readjust my lifestyle, readjust, you know, spending, readjust all that stuff, right. To sort of, you know, because, you know, here I am, you know, managing partner of a fund, right. It sounds very, you know, sort of impressive to people, but, you know, the reality of the sort of cash flow of that is it's very different from the from the from what people post on Instagram or LinkedIn or what have you. you know, so. I know. Can we demystify <laughs> some of these things for people? So you, you when you listen to the, the podcast, you won't be able to see me, but I'm telling you right yeah. now that I'm like smiling as Franklin yeah. is speaking because I'm like, these are some of the things that people really need to understand about looking for funded. So the, the name of this podcast is Where's the Funded, right? Yeah. And yeah. People, I think sometimes people also don't understand that it's also difficult for the people who manage funds to raise those funds. And it's a process. Oh, so yeah. they might go through the similar process as you looking for funding for your business and go through a lot of the same frustrations and the long time frame that it takes to actually raise those funds and then deploy them. Absolutely. So um, let's continue walking through that process of raising funds. And then yep. once you've raised enough funds, um, getting into the execution of, of those funds. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, there's an asterisk on all these things, which is, you know, if you're focused on Africa in particular, um, it, it, it's, it's a very lengthy fundraising process for one simple reason. I mean, the audience of, of people who have capital 
who are interested in risking that capital on the African continent is very, very delimited. Um, and that's just the reality. Um, so, you know, uh, if you think about the largest fund, fund pools in the world, you know, you're talking about the United States, you're talking about Europe, you're talking about the Middle East, and you're talking about Asia. And, you know, in all those places, I think um, the, the, the level of appetite for Africa is generally overstated. Um, I think in the U.S. it's, it's zero, essentially, you know, um, uh, we're trying to change that. Um, that's one of the reasons why we exist. But um, today, the reality is that, that you know, that, that, that appetite is very, very limited. Um, in, in Europe, it's a little bit better. Um, uh, candidly, it's because of the colonial heritage. I mean, I think many Europeans have within living memory or certainly, you know, uh, you know a grandfather or a grandmother or somebody who has direct, you know, uh, exposure to having lived in Africa, worked mm -hmm. in Africa, earned revenue from some African source. Um, so there, there's a lot so more. So again, happening. familiarity. And familiarity. people want to put Absolutely. their money where they feel familiar and comfortable. And I think that that ties into that whole risk argument Correct. and appetite for risk. People don't want to take risks with things that aren't familiar. And even when you look at... Um, the funding thesis for a lot of these companies, they're looking for a lot of the same things that they're already familiar with um, funding in wherever their country of origin is that the fund, right. you, you know, the funds are collected from. So anyway, right. I'll, I'll let you go right. ahead with No, no, no. I mean, you're exactly <laughs> right. I mean, I think, I think there is definitely a huge, I don't know risk, right. Premium mm -hmm. that people add. Right. So if I'm in Chicago, uh, or, or wherever, right. And, and, and somebody's asking me, somebody's bringing me a deal from Uganda. I don't know anything about Uganda. I've never met anyone who's from Uganda. I don't right, fully I, so. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to add, you know, say a thousand basis points in terms of my, you know, required risk premium, um, just because, right. Like I, I just don't know. Right. And, and more, and just bringing that to a human context, like, no one who works in, you know, Cleveland or Chicago, or New York or, or Los Angeles is going to get fired for investing in a deal, uh, you know, in, you know, Pittsburgh or, or Boston. Right. But if a deal goes sour and it's in, you know, Burundi, I mean, you're fired. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, well, what were you doing then? Right. So so I mean, that that's just the reality. And I think um, and I think I think I think add to that, particularly if you're looking at Africa, um, I think that there's this over, there's, there's, there's a sense that seems overdone to me that there's more interest, say, from the Middle East or from India or from, from Asia. And I, I just haven't found that to be the case. I think you may find that you have, you have people more willing to have a conversation, perhaps, um, because they are also from a, you know, uh, an overlooked region, let's say. Um, but um, it's not, it hasn't been the case to me that, um, there, there are these sort of Gulf shakes. You know, when I first started, this is what I was told: like, oh, you gotta go to the Middle East. You know, you gotta go, you go, you know, go for some, you know, the sovereign wealth funds there. Um, but I, I just haven't found it to be the case that there are all these sorts of, um, you know, huge sums of money just waiting to come into Africa. Uh, uh, you know, every everything has to be very sort of well, um, uh, you know, packaged and structured, and you have to push and fight and chase for capital. Reality is. Africa's primary source of capital is the development of financial institutions. Um, uh, it remains to be the case. And I think that will be the case for some time. Um, and, um, you know, uh, and I think that there's a lot of explanation for, for that. I think the main one is the sort of colonial legacy and there's sort of a natural um, foreign policy 
interest in promoting certain uh, trends and, and outlooks and perspectives on the African continents for those partners uh, that doesn't exist in, in other places. Uh, so so similarly with Chinese, I mean, there's all this talk about the Chinese. Um, you know, the Chinese state, I think, is doing a lot of interesting things uh, with African states uh, at a state to state level. And I think individual Chinese entrepreneurs are coming to Africa and pursuing opportunity. But I think um, it is very rare that, that, that Chinese investors will invest in, in local African businesses or, or businesses run by other people in Africa. Um, and, and I think, you know, before, before we started the podcast, you mentioned, um, you know, Francophone and Anglophone. Um, yes, and let's get into that because that's one yeah. of the reasons why I was really interested in, in speaking with you because I've yeah. spent many of my um, years working in development, working in Francophone Africa and finding that there's a dearth of um, foreign investment in Francophone Africa. You find them, you know, sort of clustered in certain countries in West Africa that are Anglophone, like in Ghana and in Nigeria, and then on in the East and, and in the South, you know, in those countries over there, Kenya, you know, South Africa, Tanzania, other places, um, Uganda. And what, so I, I'm very interested why you chose the geographic approach that you chose and why you chose to lift up some, some rocks and go to, to different places than where everybody else seems to be crowding in. Like what, what's your thesis on that for, for, for choosing that route? Yeah, you know, that was quite intentional. Um, it, it was, it was, one was a little bit, um, uh, you know, I, I think we had a thesis um, around the fact that, uh, you know, opportunity would be easier to come by and there'll be less competition for deals in markets that were overlooked for all sorts of reasons. Um, and since we had already narrowed, I mean, Bayless is, is focused primarily on industrial and opportunities and more recently telecom opportunities. So we, we, we have a, a fairly narrow funnel in that regard from in terms of what we look for for, for, for opportunities. Um, and since we already had a uh, somewhat circumscribed sort of set of opportunities that we'd be interested in, we thought it would be good to have, you know, a, a, a more expansive uh, region within uh, which to look for those deals. Um, the other less kind of academic reason, which is a little bit more um, uh, of a marketing reason was, um, you know, it, it's tough to find funds that want to do deals in those regions. So we thought, you know, for those, and there are investors who have particular mandates, particularly in the development financial uh, community um, to find, you know, Francophone, uh, you know, post-conflict, uh, least developed, et cetera. So we thought um, it would be it would, you know, it could, it could be an edge to sort of be open to those those spaces um, with certain uh, dedicated investors who had specific mandates. Um, it also helps that my co-founder is French uh, and is fluent in French, and uh, I also speak French. Uh, so, um, so I, I think we thought it was a natural edge that we could have. Um, in terms of why those areas are so overlooked, um, I think that that. Uh, I mean, a lot of these, in Africa, unfortunately, many things come back to colonialism. I think um, the French approach to colonialism, which bleeds through to the way those countries tend to operate today from a business perspective, um, led to a situation where French companies operate in Francophone Africa. 
Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, it's far less likely that, um, you know, they would trade with local African companies or invest in local African companies, etc. So you just don't have the same density of entrepreneurial kind of infrastructure in the Francophone African countries, I'm afraid. Uh, so, uh, you know, Ghana, the, the countries you mentioned, Ghana, Uganda, uh, you know, Kenya, uh, uh, Nigeria, of course, uh, which is always a stereotype of everyone has a business or side business. Um, you know, the, the, those are very arm's length colonial type of arrangements. So, you know, the idea was, you know, you guys arrange things here and, and we take it, right? You know, we, we, we buy it. Um, where in France, it was, we come, we do it. Um, and I think that that's continued to today. And, 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 and so finding, so quite frankly, I mean, it's a different kind of private equity. I mean, typically when you enter uh, a Francophone country. Um, so not, Franklin, not not, before you get yeah. into it. So the question is, yeah. what's the problem that you, the Bailey's Fund is solving in, in yeah. these countries that it's focusing on? Bearing in mind that you are focused primarily on um, manufacturing and industrialization and mm -hmm. And the fact that the industrial revolution still hasn't been fully realized in Africa. So this is definitely an area of investment that is very much needed. So yeah. with that being said, um, what, yeah, what, yeah. what are you solving for? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it, it, it's a big question. I mean, I mean, we certainly had, you know, we very intentionally picked our investment focus. I mean, I think we have a very strong conviction that, you know, you will not create prosperity in an emerging region without, uh, manufacturing capacity without manufacturing being, you know, more significant share of GDP, you know, without value adding and beneficiation and processing happening locally. Uh, Otherwise, you're just I, maintaining the same colonial relationship that Africa has yeah. had with the rest of the world in terms of trade, produce primary Correct. raw materials, send it somewhere else to get manufactured into products that Africans then buy back. That won't right. work right. for right. the future right. if Africa is going right. to move forward as an entire continent and not just a few countries here and there, but continent wide. Right. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think Africa made some mistakes in the post-colonial period in terms of the policy advice it chose to follow, um, you know, which was very much neoliberal, Bretton Woods, you know, liberalized borders, you know, market market-led exchange rates and all these things. And you know, you're selling dollar-denominated commodity products of which you're a price taker. So you know, invariably, there's going to be a year where you're going to get very few dollars for your oil, tin, you know, cocoa, whatever it is. And if you're importing everything in hard currency, it's going to be a problem, right? And so we've seen that over and over again. And that's, you know, and, and look, if you buy, you know, if you sell raw tin, you sell raw corn, and you buy back tin corn, you're going to lose money on every round trip, right? It's just, it's just mathematics. So I think what we're trying to do is say, well, why can't you tin corn in Africa, right? Um, it's a very simple uh, idea. And I think it's also one that we hope is very lucrative because you know, the world's different now. I think it's, it's, there are significant benefits to sort of producing your own needs locally. The African population has grown significantly. So you have a lot of opportunities to scale locally. Uh, we've got this whole new free trade zone that's gone, that's just happened, et cetera, so you can build you can, you can face larger consumer audiences. Uh, but in terms of what the problems we're trying to fix, I mean, we tend to look for situations in which um, the, the manufacturing and production process is fairly straightforward. 
Um, we like very staple end products um, that have ready demand. We, we, we definitely try to stay away from things that are, you know, too whiz bang, too, uh, you know, too, 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 too popular, et cetera. You know, we, we want to sell, uh, you know, we look for things like people who make rebar, people who make, you know, building materials, uh, people who make, uh, who manufacture, you know, FMCG products or uh, um, well, you know, um, things, Franklin, things. what is FMCG products just for people who oh, I'm sorry, fast moving consumer goods. So, you know, uh, if you make diapers, if you make, uh, you know, hair bobby pins, uh, if you make matchsticks, um, things that I know that if I make it, somebody will buy it. And I don't have to do a lot of work. So I'm convincing anyone. Yeah, um, Franklin, I need to also connect you to Temidayo Adebayo, who I also interviewed for the podcast, who's also Nigerian, um, and he has the Bay um, Foundation and doing a lot of help indeed. programs on the continent and here, and that's his major focus. It's like, we need to get into the era where Africans are creating products that will outlive yeah. their lifetime, yeah. you Absolutely. know, because that's where you're going to see the change, creating Absolutely. products and products that can be scaled globally. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. very much into that. And that's exactly what you're doing in terms of the companies that you're looking to fund on the continent. So for someone listening to the podcast and yeah. they have a manufacturing company, what sure. are you looking for so that they can get a better sense of, um, you know, how to position themselves for funding from a, a company like yours? or from a fund like yours? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's two things, uh, speaking from a human context, which is, um, you know, alignment of the goals, uh, and, I, and I'll define those in a second, um, and a willingness to sort of, uh, you know, uh, share that vision uh, with someone else. Um, and I'll explain that as well um, in, in conjunction. You know, we, we, we I have found, um, in a lot of African business, um, businesses are, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurs are often entrepreneurs of circumstance, right? So, um, you know, they typically are looking to create enough resources to meet their consumption needs. Um, and, you know, not to simplify too much, but you often find the businessmen, they can often be quite successful, who, when he thinks about uh, planning next year's budget or next year's sort of revenue target, He'll think about the fact that you know he has three kids in school in, in the UK that have school fees. He's got you know a daughter who wants to get married, and that wedding's going to cost money. Um, he needs to buy a house for a relative. You know, it's these kind of consumption goals that then will dictate kind of how much money he thinks he needs to make um, to run his business. And 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 that fluctuation, and also oftentimes that need to take resources away from the business to meet those goals, can harm. Uh, the the ultimate like you know performance of the business and growth and the scale you're talking about. So what we try to do is really create um, a separation between the individual or the family and the business, not in terms of taking the business from them, but in the way they think about it. The business is its own living entity, separate from sort of your needs and and your desires. Um, and then that bleeds into number two, which is you know, um, in terms of what we want to do once we're sort of, in, a, a, you know, a partner to you and your business, um, you know, quite frankly, I mean, it's very, it's, 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 it's very mechanical um, and narrow, which is we want to, you know, minimize your, your unit cost of production. Um, you know, we want to make you very efficient. 
We want to make you, um, uh, you know, uh, because typically the, the kind of products that we're looking for that I talked about, they're commodity products, right? So the price is the price. You don't really have a lot of room to increase the price. And, and, and let's face it, Africa is very poor. So you're generally dealing with a pretty low, uh, you know, price point uh, in general. So what you can control is the cost, right? So reducing how much cost it takes to make each widget. Um, and that gives you profit and that profit then allows you to be um, competitive enough uh, to scale, right? And to, and, to, and to outwit your competitors and to grow. And that's what we're trying to do. Now that sounds very technical and very sort of functional in theory, but in practice that can often mean very uncomfortable things that people don't necessarily want to do. Um, change suppliers, right? Um, there could be a reason that has nothing to do with business why your supplier is your supplier, right? Um, you know, add, uh, add, add um, uh, uptime, so shifts, right? So typically in Africa, you notice um, there are a lot more holidays, a lot more weekends, et cetera, et cetera, which is, which is, which is understandable. But I think, you know, when you're trying to really drive the business and run a business that's going to be very efficient, um, you know, you often want to add shifts, you often want to reduce downtimes, and that can be very disruptive to company culture um, as, it, as it currently stands. So, um, and then also just leadership, right? Sometimes, you know, your cousin may not be the best suited uh, person to head up sales, right? Um, really? And, and maybe, really? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, you know, I, I come from a big family, I, I know how these things work. So, um, you know, that, that can be very difficult to change. And sometimes you, like you, the scion, the son of the founder, who's the chairman, you may not be the best president for the business, right? But you, you may be a great chairman, you know, person who, who goes and, you know, shakes hands, kisses babies and all that kind of good stuff. But you may not be the right person making the calls on, to, you know, where we should get our supplies from, how we should trade, you know, for, for raw materials. You know, that might be someone who's a stranger, right? You, you might want to just find the best CV, interview that person, hire a recruiter, bring somebody who's outside the business into the business. And those things are all things that you know in business school they make it sound very straightforward but i was in, going in to say that in in, in real life and especially on the continent where you know how do we, it's not so easy making those cultural shifts because there are certain patterns of behavior that are well embedded and it takes time to change a mindset um so how do you how do you deal with that in with your funds and 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 the the entrepreneurs that are in your portfolio yeah i, I mean one thing i point out is this is true everywhere in the world i mean you know in the united states you know in a family-led business these are these, these are issues so i mean i think the only real way I mean, anybody who tells you they have some magic is probably lying the only real way you can do this is 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 to avoid the problem in the first place and the only way you can do that is by you know the deals you don't do are almost as important as the deals you do, you know? So Break that down for us, Franklin. Break that down. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you want to buy very, very slowly is what I'm trying to say. I mean, you know, we, 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 we've had situations where we've been in dialogue with a company um, for two years, you know, um, before we get to a decision. And we, and we may ultimately decide not to, do, not, not to move forward with them after investing that much time. And, and just to give you, just to paint a picture for you, because of our approach, which is highly hands-on, uh, you know, we're dealing with very, you know, production, you know, grease, smokestack type businesses. Um, you know, we've spent a lot of time there. We've gotten to know people. We spent a lot of our time and resources and energy, often money, 
um, getting to know the company, doing a lot to sort of, you know, doing a, doing a lot of analysis. Um, but it's, you know, and, and we have very frank conversations. I mean, when we talk to the principal, we say, you know, look, uh, if I become your partner, um, these are the changes that, that are going to happen. This is what it's going to mean. Um, you know, we may have to replace this individual. We may have to, you know, bring someone else in. We may have to change how you do that. Um, and you have to be very honest, uh, brutally honest. I think a lot of times people want to be polite. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, 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 you know, business is about people. So it gets very personal, especially, you know, in a family business, everything is personal. It's never just business. Yes. Um, and so, you know, your instinct could be, I really want, I really like this company. I really want to do this deal. So, you know, let's, let's all be friends. Let's have, let's drink a lot of wine. Let's go to the club. You know, that's all important too. But I think you have to sort of have those difficult conversations and it's much better to have them before you have money on the line, you know? So it's true. And um, I say that, you know, for a company or an entrepreneur that's looking for funding, if you're not yet ready and prepared, or if you don't know what are the full compendium of things that come along with taking external investment, then you're not ready for it because it comes with a lot of changes. Um, yeah. to the way yeah. you do things and the way you think about the business, the way the business has to operate moving forward, if you're trying to scale. And if you're not ready for all of that, then you're just not ready because it doesn't just come. It's not like it, it doesn't just come. You just get the money and they walk away. That's not what an investment yeah. is. It's now yeah. they, they're invested. That's what they're invested. Yeah. Yeah. They're put yeah. their money yeah. on the line. And so there are things that they're going to demand of you in order to get that return on their investment. So there are some things that you need to change so that the business can reach that new level of profitability or, you know, scale to maybe another region or whatever, or just to produce more, whatever the scale is that is, is on the horizon. And that requires yeah. change. So yeah. my advice for entrepreneurs who are seeking funding is, especially on the continent, because I just feel like sometimes there isn't um, proper expectation of what comes along with, with investment in your business, because the whole yeah. idea of investment and VC money and stuff like that is kind of new and it's kind of shiny and everybody's talking about getting investment, but I don't think a lot of people are very clear, yep. especially a lot of the young youth entrepreneurs and what this means. And you need to make sure that you are educated and you understand what is required before you get out there and start asking people for their money, because one, you're not entitled to other people's money. And if they do decide that they're going to give you their money, they're going to ask for some things in return. So make sure that you are ready to receive what you ask for. Yeah, I want to underscore what you just said there and also just extend to the fact that that's a two-way street. And I think, Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, I think investors, particularly in Africa, have made the mistake of saying, you know, I went to Harvard Business School. I went to Cornell. This is what a term sheet means. This is what equity means. I, I'm, I'm, you know, these are governance. That's often not. That's not enough. That's not enough. Exactly. And 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 you know, it, 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 here's the thing. Here's the reality, right? You know, because th there were some well documented and well publicized disputes and spats between investors and private equity portfolio companies in Africa over the last year in particular. Some of them are very high profile. Um, while I won't comment on any of them since we weren't involved at all in any of them, but um, you know, the, the, the unifying theme I noticed amongst all of them was very poor alignment between uh, the recipient of funds and the investor of funds. And, and, this, is, and, and this is not to blame anyone because this is, you know, this, this can easily happen because oftentimes, you know, 
we have the benefit of being somewhat local, right? You know, I, you know, we understand usually some of the local, you know, the way the local person is thinking and the local culture and environment. Um, so I think it might be harder uh, for funds that don't don't have that uh, aspect. But even still, even, even when it's local to local, um, you know, the, the typical fund manager has a background and a profile and a social network that is so different from the typical uh, uh, owner of the portfolio company, right? The recipient of the funds. Um, and, and in Africa, uh, just getting back to here's, here's the reality. In Africa, the person who you meet who owns a company is a pretty privileged person in their local society, right? So there's a lot of stigma against, I don't understand or I don't know, right? So a lot of times people will tell you that they understand, tell you that they really know what you're talking about. And a lot, there's a lot of assuming going on in both both directions. They, they sort of get it. They kind of generally understand what's going on, uh, but they don't many times fully get it, right? And Oh, Franklin, um, how, yeah. how I am so experienced with this in yeah, my work yeah. that I've done. You know, over the years, you get a lot of head noddings and you think you have, and I like that word, alignment in your understanding. Yeah. And yeah. then when it gets, when metal meets the road, then yeah. you're like, oh my goodness, they didn't yeah. really understand. Yeah. And, and, and look, here's the thing. I mean, capital is so scarce in these places that, you know, there is a, there's, there's an incentive on the side of the recipient to just say, yes, 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 to get the money and figure it out later. And as I said, you know, people's businesses in this part of the world tend to fund lifestyles and tend to fund you know, it's their livelihoods, yeah. It's their livelihood, it's their sense of identity, it's their prestige, it's their social standing. Um, you know, a lot of people don't want it, don't want it public that they're receiving money from either private equity or a lender because you know they don't want people in their you know church or their you know social club saying, Oh, so and so doesn't needs money, like he's having money problems, like what's going on? So, you know, there's all these issues. Um, and and and, and I get the punch I'm getting is irrespective of the fact that you may be right as the private equity or VC or whoever investor and your term sheet may be perfect and you may have negotiated so the cows come home with your lawyer they had their lawyer they had advisors you know so there's no reason why they shouldn't have known that this was coming when the rubber hits the road they're the person who's local they're the person whose uncle is the commissioner of the securities whatever they know everybody, everyone knows them. They know They know the editors of the newspaper. They will run and print all sorts of stuff in the newspaper. A foreign evil person came to take my business and the swindling local people, you know, so, and that becomes your problem, right? Because at the end of the day, you're a steward of capital for investors who don't understand these issues are paying you to understand these issues and are gonna take a dim view to you saying, oh, well, my term sheet says this and we are right, so what's the problem? You know, now you're spending money litigating, you're spending time and energy on this dispute that you should be spending managing deals or looking for new deals. It's your problem, right? And you may be spiritually, functionally, intellectually right, but that doesn't matter, right? So it, it, it very much is important for you at the front end to, painfully painfully be aware even if it causes you to insult someone in some cases to make sure that they understand what they're signing what this agreement is now and what this will agreement be in five years seven years eight years right because the, the you know there's always going to be a dispute but you want to have a fact pattern and, and a relationship in which you're speaking honestly to one another 
So Franklin, what does investment readiness look like for you when you're looking for companies to bring into your portfolio? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have a much looser definition of that than I think most people do, because I think we have a much more realist perspective on the African opportunity. I think most companies you want to invest in are not ready for your investment. Um, full stop. And can can you just say that again for the people in the way, 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 way back? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, if you're looking for a straightforward private equity deal in Africa, I think you're you're, you're fooling yourself. I think, um, and, you know, and this and this this is and this is the fundraising challenge for managers in particular, because managers are faced with LPs who don't seem to want to be told the truth about what Africa really is, what the opportunity set is, and how to achieve the objectives they claim to be after. And this is this is borne out not by me, it's not my opinion, this is borne out in the, in the data. I mean, if you look at Prequin or any other sort of, you know, uh, repositories that quantitatively track the performance of Africa private equity on a relative basis to sort of say US, Europe, Asia, et cetera, Africa has significantly underperformed. And I don't think that's because the managers were stupid. I think the managers were, were boxed into an unrealistic corner of deals that will never return the, the kind of numbers you need to hit your threshold. So I'll, I'll give you a statistic. I think, and this, this was told to me by someone that I'm pretty sure it's accurate. Only 10% of Africa funds ever raised ever earned any carry, i.e. hit their hurdle rate, which is usually around 8%, and you know got above the hurdle rate into the area where they're actually earning carry. So most African managers who've ever existed themselves as a business only earned money on the annual you know, management fee, the 2% part, right? Not the 20. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a damning statistic, right? And so you, you try to sort of you know, triage that what's wrong, what's happening. Um, I think that it comes back to this investment readiness picture. I think that we think that um, you must be willing to sort of uh, get companies to a place where they're investable um, and find them uh, in that place. And, and hopefully you have the alignment where they can do the things that get you to that place. I mean, so in terms of what we need, well, we, we work with existing companies. So there has to be sort of you know, an existing ongoing concern when we get there. We, we don't do green fields or startups. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you, again, you have, to, you have to be supplying a product which there is, you know, observable demand. And, we, you know, we have proof that you've been able to sell this before. You have a, you know, you have a reasonable market share um, and you have a big dressable opportunity. That's really it for us. I think from there, you know, even things like, you know, auditable financials and all these things. I mean, there's so many ways those can, those can be gained. You know, what we what we try to do is not lie to ourselves, right? Like, you know, somebody gives me financials, I'm not assuming that they're uh, misleading, but, you know, I'm not assuming that they aren't either, right? So, you know, we want to be able to replicate those numbers uh, with common sense. So again, because we're buying companies who sell products that are typically commodities, so we already know what the sales price is, right? Um, these are simple production processes, manufacturing processes that have been done for 100 years already, right? So we have a pretty good idea of what steps should be taken, how much it costs to go through those steps, adjusted for the country, adjusted for power, adjusted for whatever, you know, in that country. Um, and then we know how much it costs for the raw materials because those are also commodities, right? So we go back into 
a rough sketch of what those financials look like. Um, and if it's very different from what we're being told, we kind of want to know why, right? So, um, so again, this comes back to buying very slowly. So I think in terms of our due diligence process, we talk to vendors, we talk to customers, we talk to regulators, we talk to people in the street, we do channel checks, you know, we go talk to the foreman, you know, so we do a lot of sort of hands-on due diligence, which still won't necessarily mean you, you know, you won't get tripped up, but you do enough of the analytical rigor as possible and enough of it sort of in a very tactile way um, to kind of box away as much unknown as possible. Um, but ultimately, we, we want a company that has some kind of problem because if it has if it doesn't have any problems i'm probably going to pay too much for it in a place like africa <laughs> so my next question is what percentage of your portfolio is either women-owned or led businesses because we know that yeah. women tend to have a compounded um barrier when seeking funding so do you do you apply it, it, any kind of gender lens when you're looking yeah at we, we we, 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 we try to, um, uh, and, I, and I'm gonna be very honest here. It's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult primarily because there aren't an, a huge number of existing operating businesses that are currently women-led uh, in Africa um, for all sorts of cultural reasons. Um, we, our gender lens is applied slightly differently. It, it happens in two ways. One is we look for companies that make products which improve the lives of women um so you know we've often looked at things in the education space or you know women's sanit women san uh, sanitary space uh you know things of that nature um and then it's once we get into a company um improving the dynamics around senior management and what that looks like and um, you know, what, what composition uh, men and women occupy those senior ranks, even if that means uh, recruiting people, if that means promoting people, um, you know, uh, I think that's kind of what we do today. Um, I think if you were in a VC seat, it would probably be um, much easier to apply a true gender lens, which is when you're purchasing companies that are led by women and backing women founders. Um, because there's simply more in that sort of new tech space. Um, the, the one thing I, I do look for, and I would point out as an opportunity, is that um, increasingly in Africa, and you've seen this in, in other regions, particularly Asia, much more frequently, um, uh, and obviously the West in some cases, but um, uh, second and third generation leaders of companies um, who are women, uh, you know, and there are a number of fairly high profile women uh, in Africa today who fit that uh, sort of criteria where, you know, the, the, you know, maybe a generation ago, it was less common for women to lead a business. And so you didn't have that, but the founder now has a daughter who's very capable, who's been well-educated um, and is handing them over more power. I think those are the places where, you know, uh, uh, private equity and external capital can play a role in encouraging that transition, transition and saying, you know what, this is great. It's it's it. it you, we can make it a uh, a a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I uh, <laughs> a necessary aspect of our deal, um, and and we can also support that transition um, if that's something you're concerned about as 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 a uh, you know as, as 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 a founding generation handing over to a successor generation. Because succession, as you know, is kind of one of the main opportunities for us as private equity. 
Absolutely. So I, I, I have, so I got some feedback from some listeners to this podcast and in terms of what people are concerned with as their challenges and, and wanted to see what advice you could give on dealing with discouragement in entrepreneurship, Uh, (laughs) because we know it it runs deeply through the entrepreneurship (laughs) journey. (laughs) So so, so there's two answers I have to that. One, perhaps unexpected. Um, One is, you know, I think, and particularly as people of color, uh, and probably doubly so as a woman, I would know, but I would, I would, I would imagine, um, is that you're going to get to a point in your career where, and I, I think, I think Robert Smith from Vista Equity, I heard him say this, he was the first person to articulate something I felt for a long time, but you're going to get to a point in your career where they're not going to give you the job you think you deserve, right? Like, like no one's going to promote you or create that seat you think is, is the one you deserve. And so at some point, you'll have to somehow create that position for yourself, whether it's inside one organization or by creating a new organization. Um, and that conviction, um, you know, through people telling you you're wrong and, you know, you should go get a job and it doesn't make sense, um, is really, really, is really, really tough. And that comes to my second point, which is, you know, you should really listen to people who are telling you negative things. Not that you, not that you imbibe them and believe it to be true, but you should take it as data and sort of carefully analyze um, sort of the feedback as, uh, you know, and, and, but, but through a filter that makes sense, right? Because we all have our own appetites for risk. So somebody who has a very low risk appetite can be telling you you're doing something very risky and you have to sort of carefully filter out the noise in that message, which is their own fear, not yours, right? That's their fear. Um, but if you can filter that, there could be something useful about what they're saying, right? They could, so you could say to yourself, well, I'm not going to not do this, but maybe I'll create a better framework for decision-making where, you know, I'm testing out my, my, my hypothesis a little bit more um, scientifically, as opposed to taking just a full leap of faith, right? You know, maybe, you know, product market fit, you know, going out and getting some more data about, you know, what, what's the demand for what I want to do. Um, that's quantifiable. And that should give you even more conviction once you've answered their question. So I wouldn't necessarily, you know, block the haters, as they say, Um, you know, um, but I would sort of understand who they are and why they're saying what they say. Um, I mean, there's some feedback that's just garbage and nonsense. You just you just ignore that. But um, I, I think it's useful if you do think the person speaking to you has, you know, good intentions to some extent, right? As somebody who you feel is a positive person in your life. Um, it's it's wise to, to to at least, you know, make sure you understand what it is that they're telling you and 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 then sort of reject it on the merits, reject it on the facts, right? You know, um and, and go through that process. But um yeah, I mean entrepreneurship is a very lonely road. There's no question about it. Um and no one will really get it, right? Not your siblings, not your parents, not your significant other, um, not your best friend, you know, no one will really get it, right? So, um, you you know, you've got to develop a conviction that pushes through uh, potentially negative feedback from all those sorts of counterparties. And sometimes this seemingly negative feedback, especially from family and friends, sometimes depending on 
where it's coming from. It's out of their fears that they're projecting yeah. onto you. And sometimes it's because they love you, right? They don't want to yeah. see you fail. They don't want these things yeah. to happen. They don't want you to leave your good job that's paying you a nice salary to go into this unchartered and unsecured territory. So sometimes and maybe that's partially where... subsidizing them. That too. Fear of losing <laughs> subsidies that you are providing to them. If you Absolutely. <laughs> so you just have to understand that sometimes discouragement, a lot of it is underpinned by, by fear. So mm -hmm. the other question that this person had was around um, lack of sufficient information on how to run a business. So let's say this is someone sitting on the sidelines thinking about entrepreneurship and yeah. you know wrestling with all these things in their head and they're like, I actually don't know if I know how to run a business. What advice yeah. would you give to that person? Yeah, no, that's that, that, it, it, and that, that I mean, I, I thank that person for their self-honesty um, because that's something a lot of people don't like to tell themselves. I mean, it, it isn't straightforward to run any kind of business, including asset management business, which I think people who raise funds forget that your primary business is asset management, which is raising funds and whatever. So um, I think I have two answers. One is don't be afraid to share, i.e. get a partner, get, get multiple partners, you know, partner with people who are already doing it. Um, and, and, and that requires really understanding the value that you bring to the, to the, to the idea, uh, because ultimately there will be some conversation about, you know, who deserves what, you know, if this thing is successful or what have you, um, or who, who has what responsibility, right? You know, you may really desire a certain function, uh, but that may not be your strong suit, right? So you, you may, you may have to, and you might be leaving the corporate world because you know they're not letting you occupy a function you think you want to be in. it may be unique you're not skilled enough to do that function yet um at, at a certain level i think the other the second piece i would say uh is uh you know timing of when you want to become an entrepreneur i think is something that requires a lot of maturity um it it, it may be that you have an idea um but and it's you know, not it's, just it's, about maturity in age it's maturity of yeah. thought um, yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because you may be two jobs away from being an entrepreneur, right? And, and, and you, and you want to be intentional about those two jobs, right? Like, what is it about running your own business that you don't know that you could potentially learn in this other role? And it doesn't have to be apples to apples what you want to do. But you know, if, if it's if it's managing a team, you know, if it's, uh, you know, if it's sales and marketing or whatever, whatever it is, right, um, you know, uh, see if you can find out and learn those skills on somebody else's dime, rather than on your own time and your investors dime, right. Um, so I, uh, uh, I think, you know, I think I think people should be very, very honest with themselves about when they're ready to become an entrepreneur. Thanks for that. Um, another question is, uncertainties in the market and deciding on the right market like how how do you know what advice would you give to this person who's thinking of starting if they're not quite sure about you know what the right market is and uncertainties in the market what's the right business model what advice would you give to this person yeah i mean again i think i think i think you know look we've kind of fetishized the swashbuckling fearless entrepreneur in our society who's 22 and just jumps out there and makes a billion dollars. And that's just not reality, right? So I think you wanna de-risk this decision as much as possible. It's already gonna be hard enough. So, you know, if that means um, starting 
your company as a side gig or as a side hustle, as people call it, um, so that, you know, the timing and the market um, isn't so important for you to feed yourself. Um, and then, then that's one idea. You know, another thing is about, you know, when you get started. I mean, sometimes the market drives the entrepreneurship. I mean, you know, it's a very vibrant market right now for fundraising. Um, and if you've got an idea that, um, put it this way, a cuspy idea right now is lower risk to start than it was in a market, you know, in 2008 when no one was, was raising money, right? So I think um, part of it is just to be aware of kind of the market for, particularly I'm, I'm talking to, to startups looking for VC type of money now, right? Those, mm -hmm. You know, that, 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 a lot of, a lot of success in that is driven by when you were raising money. If you, if you just look empirically, right? Like, you know, if we were started in a different environment, you know, it's, you know, wonders if, if they would have had the same success, right? You know, and, and, and there are lots of other examples where, you know, success was driven by a very ebullient fundraising environment and, and not the other way around, not, not necessarily the strength of the idea. But if you have an undeniable idea, um, again, I would de-risk it. You know, I would, I would, you know, I would start it, you know, on nights and weekends, you know, or, or, or some other way to sort of manage your, um, you know, your cash flow. Um, uh, uh, so you can, so you can give the idea the space it needs without worrying about your own, uh, needs. Um, uh, and, and then, you know, and, 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 and put it out there, uh, you know, irrespective of the market environment. But, you know, if you think your idea is just okay. And again, this requires, you know, honesty and maturity, right? Like, you know, when your idea is like, it's Facebook or if it's like, you know, it's just okay. And it could work because of this, like, because of that. And, you know, if it's the latter, you know, I think then, um, you know, uh, having some certainty of funding before you get started um, is a big help because then you have a lot of runway to fail. So that gets to the next question. It's finding initial capital to start. Yeah. 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 yeah and this is all, this is, this is, this is the big disadvantage for people of color, right? Because, um, you know, there aren't sort of huge repositories of family wealth typically. Because uh, we don't just have friends, families, and fools just lining up to give us money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I you know, and, 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 and again, there's a lot of dishonesty in the media around entrepreneurship these days. Right. So, you know, I think it's often not discussed how many successful founders are, you know, heirs. Right. Like people who come from a lot of money. And so there is a or have access um, to people who have money, access to people who have money. Um, you know, even small things, right? Like the ability to live in someone's basement, right? Like, or, 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 or live in a garage. I mean, that sounds like it, 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 it's positioned as modest, but that's, that's a quite fortunate position to be in, right? Like to have someone pay your bills, you have your own space, you, you can, you can tinker. I mean, that, that's not everybody's reality. So, okay. So how do you do it? Um, I think, again, um, I think timing of entrepreneurship is important. And part of that timing is what does your balance sheet look like, right? Like, you know, are you, you know, part, part of the reason why you, why you focus on financial uh, health early in your career is so that you have choice, you have flexibility to make choices later, I think. So, you know, limiting your debt profile, a lot of saving, making some of those choices so that you have, you know, you don't have to have a huge nest egg to go and, you know, dive headfirst into, you know, 
you know, funding your first business. But typically, your first funding is literally just paying for yourself to, to be alive without earning an income for a couple of years, right? That's really what we're talking about. Like um, you are your first investor. So you before you go <laughs> looking for money from anybody else, you better make sure you've got skin in the game. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and look, I'll, 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 you know, I'll, I'll be real, right? Like, I mean, I think part of this is, you know, you know, like it, it, it's much easier for the spouse of a gainfully employed person to become an entrepreneur than somebody who's by themselves, you know, figuring it out, right? Like these, these are, they're, they're, there's just some real things here, right? That people leave out of their story. Absolutely. <laughs> Your spouse's um, access to, to capital and, and, and their paycheck can be sometimes your first their health their healthcare right their healthcare their plan right? because that allows you to take that risk and say okay I'm right. gonna try and go all in out on it and like you got me babe all right let's do this right. you know or they actually right. take money out of their savings to like invest in you and the idea so absolutely. yeah absolutely so Franklin absolutely. before we wrap up um what yeah. else would you like our listeners to know about um, Bayless funds and what you're doing with your your emerging market um, funds that you're you're raising. So, where which countries are you currently in in terms of um, portfolio uh, companies that you've invested in? Yep. So we're we're we focus on West, Central, and East Africa uh, uh, as as our regions of target markets. Um, and as we said, I just said earlier, including Francophone countries. Um, we, we have our base of operations in Nigeria, uh, but we also have satellite outposts in, in Senegal uh, and, and Nairobi. Um, uh, we found a lot of success uh, in Uganda. Uh, so that's a market that we like a lot where we have, uh, you know, several projects at the moment. Um, obviously, Nigeria is Nigeria. So there's always a lot of opportunity and a lot of things uh, to do there. Uh, but we, we've also found success in Francophone markets uh, like Benin Republic, uh, Senegal, uh, uh, Guinea Conquery. Uh, those are places that we've, uh, you know, we have ongoing projects. Um, I think in terms of where we want to be going forward, I mean, uh, we're obviously, you know, continuing to raise our maiden fund, uh, which has been a labor of love. Uh, and uh, that, you know, we've had some success this year uh, on that fundraising journey, but we still have a ways to go. Um, and we're also sponsoring direct deals, um, which are typically a little bit larger than, than the deals that go into our actual fund. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of what we want to build, I mean, we want to build a platform um, that brings the same level of analytical uh, uh, and investment rigor uh, that would be expected anywhere else in the world uh, in Africa um, and produce the same types of returns that would be expected anywhere else in the world uh, in Africa, which, you know, it, which is a fairly high bar. Um, but I think our goal is to hopefully de-exoticize uh, Africa and African investments um, and treat them with the sort of same level of discipline uh, and, and the same level of seriousness that you treat uh, business anywhere else in the world. Well, Franklin, thank you so much for that. Thank you for joining the show. And to our listeners, we hope that you got what you expected when you tuned into this episode. If not, let us know what you want us to cover by completing a short survey in the show notes. So make sure you check those out. If you would like to be a guest or sponsor an episode um, or sponsor the podcast, please contact us at wheresthefunding at gmail.com. You can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, stream, download, rate, review, share, all that good stuff. 
Um, share your favorite episodes with friends and family so that more people can get the value of what we're trying to create on this platform. Follow us on Instagram at Where's the Funding Podcast and the Africa Edition show on Facebook at Where's the Funding Podcast. Uh, podcast Africa edition and also follow your hosts on LinkedIn Michelle J McKenzie and Lydia Nylander and please make sure you join us for the next episode see you then all right